How's everybody doing? Woohoo. So today we're going to continue our study in the book of Romans. We'll be doing two verses today, so get ready. And as the title indicates, we're going to be looking at our obligation to God. Now that word obligation doesn't usually sit right with us. We don't like having obligations. In my job, uh, as a pastor, there are certain things that I'm obligated to do. Some I enjoy, while others I do uh, sort of out of duty. We all have things like that, things we must do, obligations to our jobs, to our family, to our friends. Just last night, I had to go to a a retirement party for a not-so-close friend. Now, there was good food. The taco man was there, woo. So, so it wasn't so bad. But I was there mainly out of a sense of duty. Really, duty to my wife. As a friend of my wife, you know how those things go. Now, today we're going to focus, however, on our obligation to God. And even though the idea of obligation doesn't really excite us, it's my prayer that as we examine why we're under obligation to God and, and what our obligation to God is, then, then we'll not only commit to this obligation out of duty, it is our duty, but we'll be inspired to joyfully embrace our obligation out of love, out of love for God. And so let's begin by looking at the foundation of our obligation. In Romans chapter 8, verse 12, we read, So then, brothers, that word really means fellow believers, Christians, male and female, we are debtors. We owe a debt, and that debt needs to be paid. The NIV translates it that we have an obligation. The NASB says we're under obligation. And what is our obligation? And why are we under it? Now, the New Testament reveals at least three obligations that we can be under. I say can because if you're, you're, you're not a Christian, then you're only under one of the three. We'll look at that. While Christians have two basic obligations. So, so what are these obligations? And which one is Paul referring to in Romans chapter 8, verse 12? The first obligation is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember from Romans chapter 1, going all the way to back to Romans 1, 14 and 15, Paul wrote, I, and, and we applied this, it includes us, we obligated, have an obligation, same Greek word as debtors in Romans eight twelve, both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and to foolish. That is why I'm eager to preach the gospel also to those of you in Rome. Now this obligation to the preach the gospel is crucial, and it's clearly only for Christians. But it's not the obligation that Paul is speaking of in chapter 8, verse 12. Neither is the second obligation we find in the New Testament. That is, the obligation to pay the penalty for our sins. The Bible speaks of our sin in terms of debt that we're obligated to pay. However, This only applies to the non-Christian. For the Christian, the debt has been paid by Jesus Christ. Jesus died in our place. He took our debt, our obligation on Himself. As the the song goes, we owed a debt we could not pay. He paid a debt He did not owe. So second, there was an obligation to pay the debt for our sin. But that obligation no longer applies to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul has been proclaiming. 
uh, throughout the book of Romans. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that by God's grace, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ are justified, were declared righteous, were given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're forgiven for our sins. We don't have to pay for them anymore because Christ paid for them. And we're saved to eternal life. But the gospel doesn't stop with our salvation. It continues with our sanctification. We enter a process of becoming righteous. Of becoming who God has declared us to be in Christ Jesus. We're free to experience life in the Spirit. We're free to be filled with the Spirit. Life where there's no condemnation. Life where the Spirit sets us free from the power of sin and death. Life where the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ dwells. He takes up residence. He lives within us. Where we belong to Christ. And Christ gives Himself to us. And because of this, when we die, we'll experience the resurrection. That's what we saw in Romans 8.11 last week. We will be given a new body. And we'll experience the pleasures of eternal life, the pleasures of sin no more, no more sin in the presence of God. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what we've seen in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to Romans 8, verse 11. And this leads us to the third obligation found in Romans 8, 12. So, because of all of that I just said, and more, brothers and sisters, we are debtors. That word so points back to what we've just looked at. It points back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus paid our debt and gives us eternal life and He gives us life in the Spirit means that for a Christian, the debt we owed because of sin is now replaced by another debt, another obligation. We owe everything, our eternal life and our current life in the Spirit to God. Therefore, as we talked about last week, we are not our own. We're bought with a price, and we're under obligation to God. And how we fulfill that obligation will become clear to us this this morning when we get to verse 13. It's our third point this morning. It's really the main heart of what we'll be talking about. But first, Paul makes what what should be an obvious point. What what we're going to talk about now should be clear to everyone. Turn on the news, this week especially, clear. However... The fact that Paul mentions it, the fact that we keep needing to hear it, uh, he, he wants us to know that yes, we're debtors, but the flesh is not our obligation. We are not under obligation to the flesh. Verse 12, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. The flesh here refers to the part of us where sin resides And it means our physical body, but it really means the sin that resides within our physical body that seeks to influence us. The NIV translates it, our sin nature. And Paul says, we are under no obligation to live according to the flesh. I mean, seriously, ask yourself, why why would we be? What positive thing has giving in to the sinful desires of the flesh ever accomplished in your life? In my life, I can unfortunately think of many examples where my flesh has caused me shame and guilt and sorrow and pain. Where my flesh has caused me to hurt myself, caused me to hurt others. But I can't think of even one example where following the desires of my flesh has yielded positive results of any kind. 
Now, God can, in His grace and love and mercy, use even our sinful hacks, even our flesh, for His good purposes. That's what He did for Joseph when his brothers sold him into slavery. Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. But that's not the flesh creating something positive. That's the grace of God creating something good despite our sinful flesh. Think about it. Think about the sin of the sins of the flesh, the works of the flesh we, we talked about a couple weeks ago. I'm not going to read them all again. But when has uh, sexual immorality of any kind brought about any good? Instead, it yields only guilt and shame, broken relationships, divorce, devastation of families. Well, what about selfish sins like greed and covetousness, materialism? Do these things ever produce anything positive? Maybe they help you acquire some stuff. Maybe you get some stuff. But the cost is jealousy and bitterness, lying, cheating, and if left unchecked, stealing and, and violence and, and jail. All for more stuff that never satisfies, never brings true happiness. Or what about anger and hatred of other people? What about racism? What, what positive things have ever come from these sins of the flesh? Bitterness and violence and murder and prison. This week we saw some pretty serious, uh, pretty serious outworkings of the flesh in our culture. People living according to the flesh will produce what Paul says ultimately is death. I hope you see the point. We owe nothing to the flesh. Our sinful flesh has never and will never bring about anything good in our lives. And even worse, as I said, its ultimate result is death. The flesh has been trying to kill you from the day you were born. That's what Paul says in verse 13, the beginning of verse 14, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, eternal death, separation from God. Now, some take this to mean that if a Christian chooses to live according to the flesh, he will die eternally. He'll lose his salvation. But I don't think that's what Paul's saying, because that's not what the Bible teaches. Paul's already said in verse 1 of the same chapter, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are justified by faith in Jesus Christ will not experience eternal death. No condemnation. So when Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, I take that to mean uh, one primary thing, which we'll talk about, with two uh, corollaries, two subpoints. Primarily, I think Paul is, is just stating a fact about those who live according to the flesh. Yes, it's true that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And, and by death, we mean eternal separation from God. But his purpose is not to say to Christians, death awaits you if you stop living according to the Spirit and start living according to the flesh. His purpose is to show that Christians are indebted to God because we do not live according to the flesh. He's already said that in verse 4, that we who are in Christ do not walk, do not live according to the flesh, but live according to the Spirit. God has delivered us from eternal death that comes to those who live according to the flesh. So primarily, Paul is stating a fact about those who live according to the flesh, showing Christians that we are indebted to God for delivering us from this eternal death. This is where we were. This is who we were, but we've been delivered and we're indebted to God. I think that's the main thing Paul is saying. But, but there are two corollaries that I'd, I'd like to point out. 
First, Paul has said that Christians do not live according to the flesh. Therefore, Christians will not die eternally. But what that means for his readers, for those who call themselves Christians, for you and I, is that if your life is characterized by living according to the flesh, and I take that notion of living according to the flesh not to refer to single sins in your life, but to a lifestyle of sin. Your life is characterized by sin. A lifestyle of gratifying the desires of your flesh. Whatever those happen to be, you've put them in your schedule. That's who you are. You can't repent of them because you know tomorrow you're doing the same thing. And so if you call yourself a Christian, but you live in continual, unrepentant disobedience to God, then you have no basis for believing you're a Christian at all. So the first corollary is that if you're living according to the flesh, you have no reason to believe you're a Christian and you need to turn to Jesus today. You need to truly give yourself to Him in true repentance. Now the second corollary is that even though Christians cannot live according to the flesh, we can at times in this life give in to the sinful desires of the flesh. We do still sin. At least I do. I don't know about you people. And to the extent that we allow ourselves to give in to sin, we die in this life. We're not going to experience eternal death, but we experience death-like symptoms in this life. When you sin, you will not experience life in the Spirit. You will instead experience life in the flesh, living life leading to death. So you'll experience the negative things we talked about in our second point, guilt and shame and broken relationships and jealousy and bitterness, hatred and divorce and violence and so on. So the second corollary is that to the extent we Christians give in to the flesh, we experience the death-like symptoms of living in the flesh. So don't do that. You're not under obligation to do that. You don't have to do that. That's Paul's whole point. So given what the flesh does in your life, why in the world would you consider a being in debt to the flesh. Why would you consider living even for a short time according to the flesh? You're not under, under no obligation to the flesh. Instead, you are under every obligation to God. You're under every obligation to live in the Spirit. You're under every obligation to the God who saved you and who, who gave you new life in the Spirit. And so Paul now turns to the fulfillment of our obligation. I want to look at this in two parts. First, I want to explain our obligation. Explaining our obligation. Before we can fulfill our obligation, so when you have an obligation, you have to know, what do I have to do to fulfill it? But before we fulfill it, we need to know what it is. What is this obligation? Romans 8.13 For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So, on the line here is experiencing death or life. It's, it's a big deal. We are debtors to God. We owe everything to God. We are under obligation to God. And what is our obligation? By the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. That, that phrase, put to death, is, is one Greek word, thanateo. thanateo. It means to kill to violently destroy. If you've seen the movie, uh, what's that movie? 
Star, no, not Star Wars. Where am I? Avengers, Infinity Wars. How many have seen that? Don't, don't, don't admit it. Just kidding. Anyway, the bad guy, the villain in the movie, and I won't give the ending away, but you'll see it here in the text because the villain's name is Thanos, and it comes from the same Greek. It means to kill, to violently destroy, so bummer summer. Thanos is in this movie. Anyway, in the King James, it's translated mortify. This is where we get the concept of the mortification of the flesh. Maybe you're, you're a King James person, you've heard of this, you've read a book on the mortification of the flesh, putting to death the deeds of the body. And the deeds of the, the, deeds of the body refer to our sin, to our, the things that our flesh tries to influence us to do. Paul is saying that because of all God has done and is doing for us in Christ Jesus by the power of His Spirit, we are therefore in His debt. We are under obligation to a holy and righteous God. We are under obligation to live according to the Spirit, which involves, in a big way, putting to death the deeds of the body. We must destroy all that remains of our former life in the flesh. We must not live as we were. We must live based on who we are. Or as some have aptly put it, I believe, we must kill our sin. The wording here in the Greek is violent and it's serious. It's warfare wording. That's why I asked Chad to sing, this is war. This isn't a game. This means we're engaging in a ruthless, full-hearted resistance to sinful practice. When it comes to defeating sin in our lives, to killing sin, we must reject everything we know is wrong. We must declare war on sinful attitudes and behaviors, purging them from our, our minds and our hearts. We must give no quarter, take no prisoners, pull out all stops. This means Christians don't play games with sin. You don't aim to wean yourself off sin or say, I, I, can, I can keep it under control. You get as far away from sin as possible. Like Joseph before Potiphar's wife, you run like the wind. You don't just avoid things that you know are sin. You avoid things that lead to your sin and even things that are doubtful. Why would you venture into things that could possibly be a problem for you? Because this is war. In Matthew 5, Jesus uses violent language. Uh, this, this is a passage difficult to understand. We're not going to go into it totally, but, but we want to see that how, how Jesus talks about dealing with sins. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Really? For it's better, than to lo- for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. We don't, we don't have time for all the ramifications of this verse, but I want you to see just how serious Jesus takes sin. It's clearly not something to be played with or tolerated. It's to be violently killed. And in the Old Testament... When God delivered uh, the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt, He brought them into the promised land. It took them a while to get there, but eventually into the promised land. And He commanded them to make war on, to root out and to wipe out, to kill the pagan sinful inhabitants of the land. 
And I believe this is a picture of what we must do in our own lives. We must make war on, we must root out and kill all the sinful thoughts and desires and actions in our life. Now, Israel didn't obey God. They didn't wipe out all the sinful inhabitants of the land. And because of it, they suffered some grave consequences, including being conquered, being kicked out of the land themselves. And this should serve as a warning to us. We must continue to wage war against the sin in our lives. We can't say, well, I've, I've killed most of it. I've, I've done pretty good. I've killed the big sins. Can I, can I let these few little sins just kind of live on? That will only end in grave consequences for your life. We must root out and kill even the most culturally acceptable sins. I know for myself... There have been things in the past that I, and I'm going to pick on TV here, that I've watched on TV that some, even Christians, would argue are, are harmless. Oh, that's, that's okay. I know there's a little bit of nudity there. I, I know there's some foul language, but, but it's not porn. And it's a good story. It's art, man. And God loves art of all kinds. But for me, I've had to purge these things from my life. Because they lead me away from God. They lead me to the flesh. And this is war. This is war for my heart and for my soul. But it's not a war I fight on my own power. This is important. In fact, it's not a war that I can fight in my own power. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice two things. First, it's you. You're there. You put to death the deeds of the body. It's you who kills your sin. You're the killer. You have to engage. But second, you do this, you kill your sin by the Spirit. This is how we fulfill our obligation to God. We, by the power of the Spirit, fight against and kill the sin in our lives. And therefore, we... we, are able to live in relationship with God. We're able to live life in the Spirit. So how do we do that? This is the second part of fulfilling our obligation. Now that we understand what to do, we move to exercising our obligation. Most important. How do we fulfill our obligation to God? How do we, by the Spirit, kill our sin? Well, I think we began to answer this question two weeks ago when we looked at Romans 8, 5 through In verse 5, Paul writes, this is a review, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Throughout Romans 8, Paul has been contrasting the flesh with the Spirit. You're either giving in to the influence of the flesh or the Spirit. It's one or the other. And therefore, to overcome the flesh... To, to put to death the deeds of the body, you must fully live in the Spirit. You must be filled with the Spirit. And you must live life in the Spirit. And we do that by setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. And remember we talked about minds. It's not just here. It's here and here. It's, it's everything. It's setting your affections, your thoughts on the things of the Spirit. And we do that And you don't do that by just looking at temptation and saying uh, no. Uh, I know just say no is a fine slogan, but it's not going to work. You do that. You do just say no. 
but, but if you're going to put to death by the Spirit, you must do more. You must, through relationship with God, through the power of the Spirit, through constant prayer, through prayer without ceasing, that's in the Bible, by the way, for a reason, you must direct your mind, your heart, your spiritual focus away from the things of the flesh and to the things of the Spirit. Now, what are the things of the Spirit? This is key. The things of the Spirit, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, include love and joy is the fruit of the Spirit, peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and self-control. They're the things of God. They're the, Colossians calls them the things of above. They're the, the will and the ways, and they're found in the Word of God. Two weeks ago, we saw that we find the things of the Spirit in the Word of God. God's Word, inspired, breathed out by God's Spirit, And as we continue, I want to reinforce and expand upon that truth. That truth that we need to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Because that's how we kill the sin in our lives. That's how we put to death the deeds of our body. Let me just show you again. 1 Corinthians 2, 13 and 14. We didn't look at this verse a couple weeks ago. Paul says, And we impart this this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Paul is talking about words taught to him by the Spirit. Words that he now imparts through uh, the letters he writes, including the one we're reading, including Romans, including 1 Corinthians. Letters that we have in our New Testament. He goes on to say, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is the only place in the New Testament where, where the, the very phrase, things of the Spirit, is used, besides where we, there's only two places, Romans 8.5 and here. So here, the things of the Spirit are the words of God spoken by the apostles, the things that the Spirit taught to the apostles that they then imparted to us through His Word. From this, I infer that when Paul writes in Romans 8, 5, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit, he means that they set their minds on the words of God and the realities that these words stand for. These are the things of the Spirit that the natural person rejects and the spiritual person must embrace. So to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit means embracing and applying the words of God. This is also seen in Ephesians 6.17. As Paul instructs the church to put on the full armor of God, he writes, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Imagine that. The Word of God is called the sword of the Spirit. And we're talking about killing something, right? We're talking about killing sin. And the the sword is used for killing. And that's what we're to do by the power of the Spirit. We're to kill our sin. Kill the deeds of the body by the Spirit by fixing your minds on the things of the Spirit. So that's the theory. It's through the Word of God, through setting our mind on the Word of God, the things of the Spirit, that we put to death the deeds of the body. Now, how do we do that practically? How do we practically use the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, to to kill our sin? 
Well, we certainly must begin and continue throughout our life to know God's Word, right? Making the knowledge of God's Word a priority in our lives through personal study, through attending church, through going to BSF, as so many of you do, through going to small groups, through going to the women's Bible study. If you happen to be a woman, I'm sorry, I'm not invited. Thank you very much. That's coming up in June, where they're going to look at Ephesians, a great book of the Bible. I mean, if you're, if you're going to do battle and you don't even have a sword, you will not last long. And if you try to fight against sin in your life without the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, you will be defeated again and again and again. I will say, I'll, I'll say this. Based on the Word, based on God's Word, and on my own personal experience, if you are continually be, being defeated by sin in your life, then you are not spending enough time knowing the Word of God. Now, you may be reading it, or you may not be reading it. You can read it without ever allowing it to penetrate your heart. The question is, are you spending time allowing the Word of God to soak into your life? Are you spending time committed to believing what you read and applying it to your life? Are you truly setting your mind and your heart on the things of the Spirit? Do you give your time and your energy and your passion to the Spirit-inspired Word of God. Where else should we go? Who else has the words of eternal life? Ask yourself seriously, how much time do you spend each day, each week, in the Word of God? And let me make this very practical. If you're spending more time watching TV than you spend in the Word of God, then there is no doubt that your mind is being set on the things of the flesh and you have no hope of putting to death the deeds of your body the deeds of the body by the spirit if you spend more time focused on tv than you do focused on the things of the spirit you will not and cannot be empowered to kill your sin now i pick on tv because it's my problem and because it's a big problem in our culture i think but there are other things that might be your problem other things of the flesh that you are setting your mind on. Video games, secular books and music, social media, and the list goes on. If you're spending more time with these or other things than you do in the Word of God, then killing your sin will, be, will not only be impossible, get this, it probably won't be something you're even concerned about. You're not even thinking about it because when, when you're, you set your mind on the things of the flesh, the things of the Spirit become less and even unimportant to you. You become like the natural man who does not accept the things of the Spirit. So my first word to you and, and to myself this morning is to make the time. I, I didn't say take. I said make the time. Take the effort. Make the effort in your life to set your mind on the things of the Spirit through the Word of God that you might be equipped to kill the sin in your life. But once you're equipped, once you're equipped with the Word of God, once you're equipping yourself, once you're being equipped by the church, by fellow believers, by Bible study, once you get a good grasp on your sword, once you've got a hold of it, you have to use it. You can't leave it in its uh, sheath. Is that what, that's what that thing's called, right? Thanks. Okay. Now, now we should pull out the Word of God on a number of occasions. 
to benefit in, for the benefit of others, to encourage and train and, and equip believers, to share the gospel with unbelievers. But, but we must also constantly use the Word of God for our own benefit, specifically to kill our sin. We see this demonstrated for us in, in the life of Jesus. Think about it. If Jesus has to do this, what about you? What about me? We don't have time to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, I would assign that as homework. Read that. But let me summarize. After his baptism, after God says, this is my son and whom I'm well pleased, the Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days, 40 nights. And after that, when Jesus was hungry, Satan came to him to tempt him three times. Read those three temptations and read Jesus' response. Each temptation, uh, Jesus puts to death the deeds of the body. Jesus killed sin even before it became sin. He killed the temptation with the Word of God. Three times He said, it is written. And then He quotes from the Old Testament Scripture. Jesus set His mind on the things of the Spirit. Jesus knew the Word of God. And when He faced temptation, He drew the sword of the Spirit and He killed the sin. And we must, like Jesus, know the Word of God we must draw the sword of the Spirit and kill our own sin. Now one very practical way that I found to do this is by preaching the Word of God to my... I preach the Word of God on Sunday. For sometimes, uh, I don't know, what, we're 45 minutes or so. But throughout the week, I find, found it so helpful to preach the Word of God to myself. And I would commend you to do the same. Now, what kind of sermons should, should you preach? Pastor uh, Tim Keller suggests that we preach grace-centered mini-sermons, especially when we're tempted. He goes on to explain, many Christians try to control themselves by setting their minds on law-centered mini-sermons. He says, we, we say to ourselves uh, things like, if I do this, if I commit this sin, God's going to uh, get me. God's going to judge me. God's going to hammer me. You know, we, do, we, do this, we, we say something and we say, stand back. God's, the lightning's going to come. Or we say, it's against my Christian principles. Or it'll hurt people around me. Or it'll embarrass me. Or I'll hate myself in the morning. Some or all of these may be true, but they're inadequate. They don't kill sin. They may stop you once. But they don't kill sin. Take your temptation, uh, taking your temptation to the law and using fear to deter yourself will not only bring will will not bring lasting freedom from sin. It will not kill your sin. Instead, we must take our temptation to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must, by the Spirit, allow the grace and love and mercy of God to kill our sin. You must preach to yourself the truth of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. You must read Romans 8 over and over and over again. It's all about that. And you must ask yourself, is sin, is this sin I want to do, is this how I'll respond to the God who's done so much for me? Is that how I want to fulfill my obligation? Do I want to put myself again under debt to the flesh or do I want to fulfill my obligation to God? We must take our temptations to the gospel. There we'll, we'll find God's love for us. 
love that sent His Son to the cross and His Spirit into ours. No, no, this God isn't looking, isn't calling you to, to put to death the deeds of the body so we'll all be good people. He's calling you to put to death the deeds of the body because He knows that's what's best for you, because He loves you. At the cross, God shows us the vileness of our sin. Our sin is so bad that God had to die for it. And at the cross, God inspires us to love our Savior who gave His life that we might live. And it's when we truly love Jesus that our desire to live according to the flesh, our desires to live according to the flesh are destroyed. It's when we love Jesus that we can and we do kill our sin. And it's through preaching the gospel to ourselves that we grow in love with Jesus. Here's how uh, one man, John Owen, if you know the name, he's a, a Puritan who's pretty famous for writing about the mortification of the flesh, about killing sin. This is how he preached to his heart with the gospel. He says, what have I done? What love, mercy, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled on? Is this the return I make to the Father for His love, to the Son for His blood, to the Holy Spirit for His grace? Do I thus requite or respond to the Lord? Have I defiled the heart that Christ died to wash? What can I say to the dear Lord Jesus? Do I account communion with Him of so little value? Shall I endeavor to disappoint the very purpose of the death of Christ? You see, the answer to killing sin is is not relying on fear or duty or even obligation. Yes, we are under obligation, but just knowing that and trying to live based on that will not kill sin. We kill sin by remembering and preaching to ourselves why we are debtors, why we are under obligation. Let me give you just two verses to start with. Preach these verses to yourself, allowing the Spirit of God to kill your sin. Preach Romans 5.8. But God shows His love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And preach one of the verses we'll look at next week, Romans 8.15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We're under obligation, but we're under obligation to our Father who loves us. When you're, when you're tempted, preach to yourself that you were a sinner, a vile sinner, when Christ gave His life for you. Preach to yourself that when you sin, you disappoint the very purpose of the death of Christ. Preach to yourself that God has adopted you, has made you His child, and ask yourself, is sin the return you make to the Father for His love? I believe it's not until we, by the Spirit, through the Word of God, come to see just how much God loves us. The, the Word of God is really God's love story for His people. And when we read it, and when we know it, and when we know how much he, we are loved by Him, it's the whole second half of uh, Romans 8 that we'll get to. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. It's when we know this love story that we'll be motivated by our love for Him to fulfill our obligation of putting to death the deeds of the body. So would you join me in prayer that we'll be a people dedicated to to setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. A people committed to knowing and applying and 
proclaiming to others and to ourselves the truth of God's Word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we will, by the Spirit, using the sword of the Spirit, fulfill our obligation to put to death the deeds of the body, that we might live, that we might live in the Spirit, that we might live in love for God through Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father God, Lord, I pray again that your Spirit would would fill us. Lord, we would be so full that the flesh would, would no longer hold sway in our lives. Lord, I pray in our lives that you would continue. Thank you that you've given us a method for filling, and that method is your Word. Lord, that we would go to your Word, the things of the Spirit, that we would pour over it, that we would study it, that we would know it, and that we would use it in our lives. Or that by the Spirit, we will set our minds on the things of the Spirit that we might put to death the deeds of the body. Father, I pray that for us, that we might, that we might go uh, as we put to death the deeds of the body, that we might live for you, that we might live in your power, that we might experience the abundant Spirit-filled life that you have for us. In Christ's name, amen. 